Hey, everybody, and welcome. Today you have joined Harmony Springs Give Voice. We are so glad that you are here. And today we're going to be giving voice to Black History Month and some uh, persons that we have that are notable in history, either current or past. Let's introduce ourselves. I'm Jen. I'm Greg. I'm Rayshawn. And thanks for joining us, Rayshawn. Rayshawn is a guest of ours this week, and we are so pleased and honored to have you with us. Yeah, Harmony Springs gives voice um, as an idea. It was really about this uh, this church community that we've formed. You know, a church that has uh, grown very organically uh, without a building for more than just a few years now, as we've made a journey from a from a downtown location to a new spot, and that building process, of course, impacted by COVID nineteen among other things. But the idea was that because we're a very open group. There's a lot of things we can give voice to that are within our congregation, but there's also a lot of things that we can and should give voice to that fall into the larger community. And in the case of this, I think looking at the the things that I've been considering on Black History Month this year, uh, very much a national kind of an American perspective, uh, one that really doesn't have a lot of borders and one that I think pre- prevents us a lot of opportunity to use the two ears and one mouth in appropriate proportion and and try to listen and try to learn. Um, and especially when you look back on the, the year that that we've seen, there's so much um, that I've learned just in the last year by by paying attention and, and being at home more, kind of being stuck in front of current events way more than I usually would be. You know, it's interesting as I was going through it, I found a, a character, a person who um, is probably very, very notable these days and um, has made some did not purposely, but made some real strides in the area of medicine and vaccinations. I'm talking about Henrietta Lacks. She was diagnosed with an aggressive form of cervical cancer at 31, and she died only eight months after her diagnosis. While diagnosing and attempting to treat her cancer, doctors at Johns Hopkins took a sample of cancer cells. Most cells don't live for very long outside the human body, but this wasn't true of Henrietta's cervical cancer cells. When old cells died, new ones took their place and continued on. It turns out that they're still in existence at this point over 70 years from the day they were taken. The cells have been used to research all sorts of diseases and treatments. Jonas Salk used what is now known as the HeLa cells, H-E-L-A, HeLa cells, to create the first polio vaccination. It was used for measles, mumps, HIV, Ebola, other treatments, including chemotherapy. And it can be said that her cells have saved millions of lives. And there's a very, very good chance that somewhere around the world, They've also been used for COVID vaccination testing. But, you know, even in the middle of that great story, we get something that is very typical of Black history. Her family had no idea that her cell lines had been endlessly cultivated, used, and sold for research around the world. Johns Hopkins profited off the sales, never told her family after she passed, and eventually, the Henrietta Lacks Foundation was created by an author to receive profits off the book that was published about Henrietta's life. The foundation has then helped fund members of Henrietta's family as well as others in various financial needs. Wow. Yeah, I had not heard that story before. Um, when I think about you know the last uh, year or so in particular and 
and thinking about people who've had a significant influence on me, uh, most of the people that I've kind of sort of thought I might bring up in this conversation are contemporary, uh, less historical in one sense, but maybe making history in another sense. One of the things I do on the other podcasts that I record is I name somebody, I call them a different drummer. Um, every single time I do a recording in that inappropriate conversations format, I call out somebody who doesn't just maybe march to the beat of, of a different drummer, but is actually laying down that rhythm for other people. And one of the first ones I thought of mm -hmm. is uh, Amir Thompson, um, probably known by most people as Questlove. And we see him a lot. He's He's become a fairly public figure, not just the the face in many ways, or the co-leader of the band, The Roots, but also on The Tonight Show is kind of the uh, the band is the musical voice of that show. And he's very much part of the creative force behind the music behind that show. But when I was thinking about Black History Month this year, I was thinking in particular about a Facebook post he put up, I think in 2012, that was talking about the experience of being somebody who is, who, who is feared, an awareness of being treated as different or as other and is presumed to be mm. intimidating and how that impacts even the simplest decisions about whether, whether to go to a party or not or when to get out of a car at the supermarket because yeah. the right time to open that door is perhaps in the minds of Questlove. When can I be the least disruptive, the least un unnecessarily or inaccurately intimidating? And that article had a a real kind of impact on me coming shortly after uh, the murder of Trayvon Martin, which was kind of what had him thinking about it. But also the response that he had to that was incredibly thought provoking. When you think about him being part of a, of a really an essential rap outfit, uh, a rap group that changed the way a lot of people think about rap music and that a lot of their music is live and not necessarily pre-recorded or mixed, but the band isn't normally his voice. He's more the drummer than the speaker. And yet I think he really provided a voice, at least for me, that's been resonating all these years. And when a new incident comes up where people mistreat others over a perceived point of fear or claim being afraid when maybe that isn't 100% accurate, I always go back to what Questlove wrote on Facebook that um, later New York Magazine said, this isn't a Facebook post, this is an essay, can we publish it? The reality of what it means to be black, you know, in America, it's a deep, you know, existential, scary phenomenon because, you know, it, I guess, I, I guess I could say I understand it. And I guess I want to say blacks understand this reality, whereas other ethnicities might not get it, um, primarily the dominant culture. So I could relate to, uh, you know, the, the guy you just mentioned, the rap, the rap star guy, yeah. because it's almost like, you know, when is the perfect time for you to be you? You know, what's the ideal time to just come out and be who you are? And the answer is you have to read the dominant culture. You have to read other people, to, you know, to figure out when can you speak? How do I speak in this context versus this context? I don't want to come across too black. I don't want to, you know, say certain words or terminologies to, you know, duplicate uh, stereotypes or anything like that. So it's almost like as black, as black people, especially as black men, we have to read 
the dominant culture or the white culture and figure out how to conduct ourselves. And that can be overwhelming. That, that's so much. There's so much in there. Um, I, I never went through a period where I was so, I don't know, nervous and aware of my surroundings as when I was in college and would walk, you know, various streets around campus at pretty much all hours of the day and night. Uh, even sometimes in, in just the daytime, being with somebody else and a car would slow down and sort of follow us. And just the experience of, of being out at times in the evenings was, uh, was overwhelming and frankly exhausting, so much so that at times I would say, forget it, not going out. Yeah. Yeah, there's only so much comfort you find from the blue emergency telephone. Um, I was thinking about when I used to walk on a college campus and, um, you know, at night when I was in school, I would, I would walk a lot. And by going, cutting through the campus on the campus sidewalks, there was like a, a blue, like hotline to the police every, I don't know, 20, 30 feet. And I thought that was kind of interesting because on the, just the streets of a college campus, I felt a lot less alone and frankly, a lot less intimidated than I did on the streets of a very small town in Oklahoma that we moved to shortly after my wife and I got married. And I always felt a little bit more ill at ease with groups of people who I didn't know who were in community with each other. And in the case of uh, Muskogee, Oklahoma, that was that was almost 100% white people who, again, assuming that they had some sort of common knowledge or they were they were part of a culture that I hadn't I hadn't yet been privileged enough to join yet. And it created that otherness feeling, which, again, wasn't even a fraction of what I was uh, reading when I was you know, taking on that article from Questlove and doing something I almost never do, which is read the comments. And uh, reading the comments always goes the same way. It goes like you'd expect. But I think that uh, what he had to say held up and what he offered to the conversation was uh, the privilege of a mile in his shoes. And I think he wasn't making strong claims. He wasn't demanding policy. He was just saying, hey, Things happened in the last few weeks. Here's how I feel about it. And he was able to write it in such a way that I was I was on the elevator with him, which I thought was pretty awesome. So, Rayshawn, would you be able to um, share an experience of yours or someone else's that you'd be willing to share um, that brings forth the realities of living black in America? I can start with basic stuff like speech, the black language versus the, the white language. You know, how do you conduct yourself. And it's not so deep as how do I act at work versus how do I act around my black friends? It can be as simple as what is the dominant language culture and mm -hmm. how do I fit into that? And so it's not as deep as, you know, I go to work and I have to figure that culture out. It's basic relationships, you know, at the grocery store, you know, you, there's a certain lingo with the dominant culture that it doesn't go both ways, meaning the white culture doesn't necessarily have to learn black language or black culture, but black right. people have to learn the, the the white culture and how to speak and how not to come across as too black. And if you mm. are black and successful, you have to line up with the dominant culture in your language, in your uh, etiquette. And it's almost like you live in two different worlds, at least two different worlds, white world, black world. And you got another subculture going on that one as well. So for me, yeah, you know, I got my white friends, <laughs> got my black <laughs> friends, I got, you know, my work culture, and so mm -hmm. lingo, and, you know, how do I come across, and 
how how do I want to let down my, my guard and just kind of say, you know what, I'm black, I'm proud, I'm educated, but that doesn't mean I have to talk or or adopt the dominant culture's language and everything. So it's just a balance of how can I be true to who I am and yet don't be threatening, be threatening with it and, you know, still fit into this culture somehow. So. And, and really, you shouldn't have to change your language. You should be able to be you, um, especially educated. You know, I mean, you should be able to just be you and you should be able to get up and speak as you speak. You know, when we look at um, scientists and, and other folks like maybe, let's say, even on TED Talks who are coming in to speak on something that they have expertise in, they're allowed to have their own um, accent. They're allowed to have their own language. Yeah. And so why would this not be the same grace extended to our black brothers and sisters? Yeah, I hear you. Well, because, you know, let, let's switch it. You know, what if African-Americans were the dominant culture? I believe, I don't know, but my hypothesis is that because there always be a dominant culture or a dominant race of people, mm-hmm. then there will be a dominant way of living that people have to line up with. So, you know, I always ask myself, what if, African-Americans were the dominant culture. What would that look like for other races? How would we conduct ourselves as the dominant race? So, so I struggle with that. With this whole dominant culture thing, is it just white people are this, that, and the third? Or is it deeper than that? Is, is it just a human nature type of thing? Wherever you have a dominant, a dominant race or a dominant culture, people have to line it up in order to be socially accepted. So I would say that is definitely true. Uh, that if you go to another country that is significantly different than America, you're going to find a different group of folks, um, potentially as, as you said, the dominant culture. And, um, they are the ones who define what is culturally appropriate or not. Don't they? Yeah. Because just like, let's see, Matthew Alexander Henson, uh, he was born 1866.1955. Who was Henson? Henson was the first to set foot on the North Pole, but he was uh, coupled with Robert Peary, P-E-A-R-Y. I assume he's a white guy. <laughs> it was <laughs> yeah. because it was Peary uh, who received all the credit for founding the North Pole. Um, and so the commentary is saying that because Henson was black, he was virtually ignored throughout history. So, yeah, that just goes back to, you know, whoever the, is the dominant culture. They have the privilege of writing the history books and stuff like that. So, Well, and it creates a fascinating backlash when anything sort of bucks that trend. Uh, I have did, did something in the last maybe three years that I don't think I've ever done before. I've, I've read slash listened to a biography and then immediately turned around and listened to it again so that my wife could hear it with me. Uh, we usually read different things and pursue different interests, but we're on a long driving trip. And I thought, you know, I really need her to hear the becoming book that Michelle Obama wrote. Um, because mm. she really spoke mm-hmm. eloquently into that notion of kind of, of feeling like you were needing to be performative in some way in that role of a first lady, which probably isn't that different from a preacher's wife in terms of, uh, that baseline level of stress that comes with it and all the sort of ceremonial responsibilities but I felt like she was having to show way more dignity in the face of unfounded criticism than she should have. 
And I was very surprised yeah. that after eight years, she still had a when they go low, you go high mentality that she was able to to struggle all the way through that. And to me, I, I think of her as being a reagent of sorts. And what I mean from that, from like a scientific perspective, is that you can introduce her to a situation and get the reaction that tells you what's really going on. Uh, for me, when I'm talking with people who seem to have opinions that might be, in my opinion, uh, suspect and misguided, a conversation about Michelle Obama is actually the very best way to get people to reveal their racism. I'm not sure she's proud of that, but it's it's something that she's done in the culture that I think is worthy of of notice, worthy of, of mention. Yeah, I think uh, for a minute, <laughs> she was being classified as the angry black woman, you know, mm -hmm. in the mm -hmm. media. I heard it. Yeah. Yep. So that is a reality for black people, not just women or men, but for both sexes. Um, I remember at one of my job trainings as a chaplain, I did not want to come across as an angry young black male. And the training was very intense for chaplains. They sat you, you know, in a group of at least five people and you all hammered out different things from your past and biases and you talked and they encouraged uh, being, I would say, straightforward with issues that you have with other people in the group. And so I was very conscious of how I came, cro came across the group because I was the only black male, not the only black person, but the only black male. Mm -hmm. And it got very tough at times because <laughs> the group felt a lot of different ways. The training is so intense that, I mean, I, I swear that they're trying to, like, make you flip out <laughs> to, to show you, you know, certain things about yourself to to train you as a chaplain to not take it into the patient's room. So it got very intense. And so for me, it was harder because I wanted to not come across as an angry black male. And I mean, some of that stuff is just in my head, too, honestly, because you know, I might have that, uh, I don't know, that fear. Sometimes mm -hmm. it's, un it's unfounded. A lot of times it's, it's a true, you know, feeling though. So, yeah, so I watched, I watched my tone a lot of times. I had to watch my tone. I didn't want to duplicate people's stereotypes of young black males. And I wanted to keep it calm. And I'm pretty sure Barack Obama was conscious of that as well to just, you know, be cool. But I, I do think he's a very, you know, calm person by default. Anyway, Maybe there's but... a, some natural Hawaii chill going on there. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> no, I think, you know, when I think about uh, probably the, the first or one of the earliest um, people that I cited on my other podcast as a different drummer along this, you know, this discussion line was Sidney Poitier. And I thought he always did a really good job of finding a way to communicate where he was, you know, unhappy or uh, feeling strong feelings of disagreement and, and even anger. But especially back then, uh, having to keep a certain level of decorum in order to continue to be heard. Um, you know, from some of the stories that he's told about doing location shooting for movies like In the Heat of the Night, where some of those some of those scenes were in the American South of the 1960s. That um, if you asked anybody who's in my family to tolerate what the reverse experience might be, I don't think that we would speak uh, as carefully 
or as calmly as Sidney Poitier did in the interviews right after some of those events happened where you couldn't get a good night's sleep in a hotel or weren't allowed to eat in the restaurant, that kind of thing. So, Greg, how do you feel about that? And what, what do you attribute that to? Meaning, why wouldn't you all have to, you know, match that? Yeah, I, I think there, the two factors that always jump out to me is that uh, there's a, a sense of, of privilege, of ownership, an assumption of rights that makes uh, a lot of people far more combative when they uh, should have enough emotional capital to be deferential. And the bigger issue to me right now, and, and we see it, we've seen it loud and clear here lately, is we seem to have lost a lot of our sense of empathy. It's not just an American thing. You see it a lot in England and in Australia as well. But um, New Zealand seems to be doing a better job than some of the rest of us at recognizing that um, other people's experiences have validity, and that if you can't if you can't physically walk that mile in someone else's shoes, you ought to be able to at least put yourself in that position and say, "Hey, if I was experiencing this same thing, um, how would I feel about it?" And we don't seem to be able to make that leap of changing behavior as a result of that perception. You know, I meet a lot of people in churches who will smile and nod at the reality of situations like this and the need to see things from a complete 360 degrees perspective, but it doesn't change behavior as often as it should. Yeah, I agree, man. And why would that be? Why would people not be able or willing to take the step to, I don't know, reach across the aisle with a hand to make a little difference that makes things easier and better on others. I don't know. Do we, do we make assumptions and pick teams and, you know, just decide that, um, Hey, whether it's, whether it's related to race or something else, Hey, this person is, is on the other team than mine. Therefore I'm going to allow all kinds of assumptions to affect how I interact with them. Um, seems to me that I, I was doing a better job and I, the people around me were doing a better job of that 20 years ago than we do today. Hmm. Yeah, I think that, you know, there's like an inherent bias in all people. I think it's part of human nature to be uh, primitive and be part of a tribe. So that tribalism plays a part in racism. And that's that inherent part of every human being to be a part of a tribe where you look at the other as the enemy. And then you have the socially constructed factor of, you know, people being raised in a racist environment. And if they don't want to be racist anymore, <laughs> if something like that happens, which is a miracle, they're, they're fearful for coming out of the box and betraying what they were raised in. So I think it's a few different things going on. It's complex. Yeah, if I, if I still lived in, in Oklahoma where we kind of went to school, I would be, I'd be more wary more often because... Uh, I've really leaned into this notion of of all of us having a Venn diagram with lots of overlaps, and those overlaps should be embraced because the things we have in common don't erase the things that make us different, but they certainly give us that ability to run in multiple different circles. And I think that there are parts of the country where somebody who's got yeah, too open of a mind about whatever it is, uh, rap music or um, politics, uh, you could find yourself being a target as somebody who's perceived as betraying the way we've always done it around here. So, you know, I recently took part in a um, cognitive based compassion training 
And one of the things that we talked about a lot, you know, in, in trying to find compassion for others was just like me. We talked about how others are just like me. They want families just like me. They want the best for their families. Just like me, they have hopes and dreams for life. And it's one of the the phrases that we use to really realize that we are all alike, even in our differences. At a base level, you know, the foundation of life is all the same. And it's just like a house, you know, you, you put the blocks in the ground and you've got a basement, but then it's the top of it that all looks different, you know, but you probably would ask a surgeon where in a body can I go in and expect to find the pancreas and they can tell you right where it is. doesn't matter what color skin is on it when they show up in the operating room. You know, the, the self-compassion part is so important to hate someone for any reason, or, you know, you don't even have to go as far as to say hate, but to dislike somebody or to have all that negative energy going on towards someone else. I would say that you probably feel some sort of negativity towards your own personhood in the first place. So the self-compassion, you know, towards self is the beginning of something beautiful in the race with the race relation um, dialogue, because to become more self-compassionate, to be kinder to ourselves is the hardest thing to do. Well, then I would certainly posit that uh, self-compassion doesn't exist in great amounts in America. Yeah. I would agree. That, that most people don't have grace and forgiveness for themselves in their own position and whatever they're doing. They, they always say, I'm not good enough. I'm not strong enough. It, it, that's why Stuart Smalley of SNL fame was so important and so popular because would look in the mirror and say, I'm good enough. I'm smart enough. And doggone it, people like me. And if we were able to say that to ourselves each day, looking in the mirror and truly believe it, then we would have that self-compassion when mistakes are made and when things don't go right. Yeah, I've got a friend at work who talks about the difference between the vicious cycle and the virtuous cycle, you know, and at some point there becomes a kind of a self-perpetuating reality. And, um, you know, we see this a lot on social media. There's been a suggestion that whether we realize it or not on a, on a subtle level, a high degree of interaction with certain elements of social media uh, seems to reinforce negative self-image. Now, a couple of ways that happens. One is that, you know, everybody is trying to to show their best vacation pictures, not their worst vacation pictures. So you always seem to be looking at people who are uh, feeling better than you are about things. Um, But you also are, you know, Mm -hmm. I read a survey once back when I worked in retail stores that said, that a happy customer is likely to tell as many as eight other people about their experience and an unhappy customer is going to tell at least 22, you know, oh my that gosh. I'm sure that Yelp reflects this. If I, if you investigate it deeply, I'm sure that you have that certain smidgen of reviews that are all positive, just totally all in, but it's got to be overwhelmed by the ones that are negative And that, that two or three, four star, three or four stars probably is very, very light. Everyone either loves things or hates things. And you put that negativity out in the world and it often or not comes back to you. And then you end up in this vicious cycle as opposed to being willing to put a few things aside and say, this is not about me and see if that changes the interaction into one that's way more positive because uh, I'm not assuming everyone's got to do things my way. 
you know, speaking of putting our best foot forward, um, I want to talk a little bit about corporations who were doing so. Um, just recently in the past six or eight months, we've had a number of different companies who have chosen to change their logo, change their name for, for various reasons, pretty similar reasons, really. Um, one of them is that PepsiCo, the owner of Quaker Oats and the former Aunt Jemima brand, changed their branding to now be called the Pearl Milling Company. And um, it joins Cream of Wheat and Uncle Ben's Rice in retiring a caricature. Um, the Aunt Jemima caricature, character came from a blackface minstrel show. The company hired women to play Aunt Jemima at the Chicago World Expo, making pancakes and telling stories of the Old South. This myth of the happy slave sold tens of thousands of pancakes and solidified the Aunt Jemima name. Nine actresses went on to play this character over a period from 1893 to 1964. These ladies traveled the country for personal appearances and advertising, but rarely were paid as much as you might think they were. Um, so that character was, uh, as a person, was retired in 64, but it still showed up on the boxes of Pancake Mix until 2020. Uncle Ben's Rice is owned by the Mars brand of products, and now they call it Ben's Original, and they no longer carry the logo that was criticized as a racial stereotype. Cream of Wheat announced their change in the summer of 2020 to remove the Black Chef from their packaging. Mrs. Butterworth is talking about changing the bottle shape itself, said to be a depiction of the Mammy stereotype. And even Eskimo Pies have gotten on the bandwagon of this and said they're going to be changing their name and logo. Um, the new name is Edie's Pie, which is named after founder and candy maker Joseph Edie. So this brings to me a question. When is it image exploitation and when is it representation? What is the difference? So you're asking, you know, when is it positive? When is it negative? Pretty much. Well, I mean, as far as the Aunt Jemima, <laughs> did they say that it was representative of what? Of a, a blackface minstrel show character. Yeah. Okay. A lot of that stuff from the past, um, they made money off of it. And I think that they they knew what the reasoning was. I mean, they knew, you know, why mm -hmm. they did what they did. And, you know, if something makes money, who cares about all of that? Until something in the culture big happens, like Black Lives Matter, and now you have to reevaluate certain things based on the spirit of the culture and based on sales. So I would say that they're probably doing that based on Black Lives Matter, based on where the world is you know in this second about race so when is it positive or negative i i don't know you you would have to ask the <laughs> the companies who originally <laughs> you know came out with this stuff they they knew what that what they but, were doing. but you know as a as a as a black man as a black person um do you see depictions of black people in culture that are negative that you think is exploitation versus representation. Yes. It, Cause you know, it's not, it's not, you know, far to look that the reality is that people like Dave Chappelle or the comics, we make fun <laughs> of our own people, mm -hmm. of our own people, you know, to a degree because it's our culture. Um, so in that light, is it negative? It's funny and it's truthful. It might become mm -hmm. negative if a white person does it, which you know, is it fair? I don't know. 
So uh, certain stuff with Will. How about this? People talk about rap music. And, you know, the judgment claim is that they're talking about violence. They're talking about, you know, the B word or the N word. And, you know, Mm -hmm. we don't understand. And, you know, that's crazy. And what are they doing? But some people, especially back in the the late 80s, some people were rapping that stuff because it was the reality. And it was a socially conscious type, you know, message. Um, Into the 90s, Mm -hmm. you got it switched up because I think the black people started you know, making money and they took the message. They took something that was a reality in the hoods and made money off of it. And so you could say that the black people, you know, began to exploit their own realities and began to make money. And then a white culture profited off of a pure, you know, reality-based thing, which was, you know, there are drugs. There are drugs in the ghettos. There is a lifestyle in the ghettos. You know, Mm -hmm. we don't got to talk about why, but it is what it is. And so a a lot of people who rap, some people who are underground rappers and are not commercialized, they're purely rapping their experience and they're trying to let the world know, you know, what it is and what the reality is. Some people are not trying to make money and some people are. And then the dominant culture will profit off of a reality, off of a truth. And then I think that that's when it becomes exploitation because it it goes into something that it wasn't originally meant to be. Yeah, on the on the rap side, it's been pretty well documented that the the mixtape culture and there's great examples in cities like New Orleans and San Francisco of this was exactly that. It was people uh, making recordings about maybe even what just happened yesterday and selling that out of the trunk of a car on the street, and when. Rap became extremely commercial when you began to see, you know, large record multinational record companies vying for the rights to those artists, the rights to those songs. One of the first things they did was take legal steps to make the mixtape from which all this sprung illegal. So, yeah, it's not just grabbing those means of means of production and monetizing for your own purpose something that is arguably artistically successful but then turning around and making it uh, a crime for someone to do the very exact things that that led to a new musical form to begin with. And, and you know, if you look at the Aunt Jemima, okay. is, is that what you were talking about, Jen? Did you mention Aunt Jemima or no? I did. I did. That was one of them. Yep. You know, she's in a maid's dress. She looks like a darn slave. Uh, yeah, that's Mrs. Butterworth. Um, as I'm looking at my own notes, uh, Mrs. Butterworth is the one that the bottle is a depiction of the mammy stereotype. And you're right. She looks like a slave. She's got the, the uh, gingham checkerboard, um, you know, headscarf and apron on. And she's, I think she's carrying a tray of, a tray of pancakes or something. So, so to me, that's, that's exploitation because they're making money off of a sad reality that happened in America. And, you know, it's almost like, really? And you're putting this out. And so people are looking at black women or older black women a certain way because they see her on this bottle. And it's like, you know, why are we doing this? So that's exploitation because you're duplicating a sick reality and you're profiting off of it. And it might, it's probably subconscious, you know, but in the back of your mind, because in the back, in the back of my mind, it's like, wow. Look at her. She looks like a slave. And so other ethnicities are thinking that. 
um, unconsciously. And it gives black people a certain look, you know, and all of that. So it's like, why are we doing that? I think we're doing it because we always did. And because we just never stopped. Specifically in the, uh, the example of Aunt Jemima with the pancake mix, uh, they've been doing that since 1893. 1893 was before blacks had very many rights of any sort in America. It's back when, so, you know, I was going to say slaves, and I, I remember this um, picture going around Facebook of um, somebody put up a door on their classroom for Black History Month, and it says, the United States didn't steal slaves from Africa. They stole scientists and mothers and restaurant owners and chefs, and by calling in slaves, by saying that we stole slaves, we're putting only one identity on all of those individuals who had absolutely unlimited potential until we brought them here and said, work on our plantations, and we'll give you free housing and food, and isn't that great? And then later, called it sharecropping and said, oh, you can get a portion of my sales. But of course, the blacks without the right to be able to go into market and sell the items themselves didn't know how much it sold for. They could get pennies on the dollar and the plantation owners took everything. Of course. So here I am starting to get mad about it. I Just starting. I, I am absolutely livid and angry that this is our history, that this is what we need to overcome, that we we make big changes in order to, uh, you know, for enough of the country to come together to vote Barack Obama as president as a black American was absolutely amazing. And of course, decades too late, but that's a whole different conversation. But, but to, to bring him in and, and vote. And everyone said that Barack Obama brought, (laughs) brought racism to America and he, and Barack Obama did not bring racism to America. The white people did how many decades ago, a hundred years ago, they already had it. It just gave them an opportunity to open up and speak freely about these issues and the thing, the um, share the opinions that they had that were not popular before then. Mm -hmm. And then we go on to our next president who then gives not only a voice to it, but a platform to continue it yeah it's uh it's a sad it's a sad thing and my mind just went to do i want to call it slavery whatever they had going on in west africa before (laughs) Uh the trans that the transport happened yeah you know i guess you can call that slavery that they were doing in, in west africa but the difference was i believe i don't know if it was race based slavery I don't know if it was race-based slavery. It was probably more of like indentured servitude or something like that. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. You know, most of the world has always been doing that. What changed in America when they did their slavery was the race-based slavery. You know, mm-hmm. and it switched up the whole mm-hmm. game because now you're you're hating somebody and you're enslaving somebody, not just for economic reasons. It, it's for economic reasons. You are less than me based on your skin color. And so they didn't do that in West Africa. It mm-hmm. wasn't based right. on race. That happened in America. And so that's why it's it's a nasty thing that happened because that, that was awful. 
to demean somebody based on their skin color and to also have that economic reasoning behind it as well. That was awful. There's a show on Amazon Prime um, that I'm pretty sure it's still there because it just came out in 2019 called White Savior, Racism in the American Church. And um, the, the very first episode starts out with, you know, we blacks and whites together in America and it was decided that blacks would not get privileges. But then, of course, you, you have all the other folks who are different shades of brown. Um, you have Italians. You have, you know, some other Middle Eastern folks. You have um, Mexicans and, and so on, um, South Americans. And it, it was then um, folks would, uh, if they were, let's say, Italian-American, would, or just Italian, they would work hard to pass as white. So they would then get all those privileges that whites were afforded, that blacks were not afforded. It's a, um, oh, I don't know, maybe four episodes or so. I, I don't know for sure, but it, it definitely uh, showed me a little bit more. Yeah, I believe that's, I believe that's a documentary that, that talks at one point about the formation of the, uh, the African Methodist Episcopal Church. Coming about yes. from a time when there was just a, a sort of a natural experiment, I guess you'd call it, of, of a church in America that was actually integrated, moving toward being fully integrated. But um, as happens when these things, you know, go on, you know, the second somebody says, well, I'm a part of this congregation, I'm a part of this, this body of Christ, I'd like to read scripture. And then all of a sudden you find out just how real... Um, that integration was and the lines that were invisible become very clear. And uh, they, at one point it basically said the balcony is reserved for the people who aren't white and the, the floor of the church is for the people who are white. And the second that a, a black couple decided to sit on the, the first floor of the church, well, that was the end of that. And um, one of the pastors who wanted to, to read scripture and participate in, in the directly in worship ended up, having to go his own way. And as a result, what we have from that is the AME Church. Um, and that legacy, I mean, I've, I've had friends who are part of the AME Church for all my life. I can't remember a time when I didn't. But I never I never really saw the starting point there. As somebody who was United Methodist for decades, I knew all about the Wesley story, but I didn't know anything about this moment until I watched that documentary. I was going to say that um, I just thought about, I'm having like random thoughts, guys, that it must be, that's when the conversation is good, when your mind is like going everywhere. I thought about uh, theology and, you know, how many black theologians there is and why theology is so slanted, you know, towards, you know, this, this white American theology. And, you know, and it's even marred against um. You know, women, women theologians, of course. So, yeah, that, you know, there's a lot to be added in theology as well. Yeah, absolutely. My, my brother and I have been talking a few times over the last year or so um, about, I guess the way he might describe it is how many times he felt like when he was growing up, he was being lied to. Um, and it wasn't so much the overt uh, telling us something was false when it was true. It was not telling us about it at all. I mean, we grew up in Tulsa, Oklahoma. We went to school there from kindergarten through you know, college, actually. And at no point did any of us 
my my family, my brother, my sisters, our neighbors know anything about what happened 100 years ago this year and the uh, the destruction of Black Wall Street. And I think the only mention I heard of it in Oklahoma history class was that there was a, quote, race riot in the early 20s, which, again, um, my brother's not wrong to suggest that as students in, in high school in Oklahoma, we were lied to. Yeah, how much of the history, uh, whether within the church or within uh, politics or, or our culture, is hidden from us? Yeah, most, most of the names I think of when I've cited people who've had an influence on me are, um, you know, they're either, some of them are politicians, but most of them are, are actors, musicians, comedians. But there's this other whole part of our history that I think we've done you know, too good a job ignoring. And we've allowed the homogenization of history textbooks to hide or, or squeeze out anybody who says, no, I'm going to tell the story from this angle. It's like those Venn diagrams. History is is a beautiful flower as well. And there's lots of different perspectives. And, uh, you know, we, we've been cheated a little bit. I don't know that we can talk about Black theology and theologians without mentioning James Cone. Um, you know, James Cone was uh, unfortunately passed just a couple years ago, um, almost 80 years old, if I remember right. And uh, his book from uh, 1969, Black Theology and Black Power, um, really uh, turned its head on some of the theologies that had been written to that time. Um, his message was that um, black power, which is is black people asserting the the humanity that had been denied them, um, is actually in the gospel message that Jesus came as a liberator of those who were not free and um, liberate the oppressed, and he was a big advocate for that. And that same book <laughs> and many others are still being prescribed to uh, seminary students, you know, around the country. I can uh, raise my hand as one of them. I think I have three of his books. Mm -hmm. James Cole. Well, when we're talking about um, companies who have taken advantage of the opportunity to reassess things, whether about their brand or about whether they do a good enough job listening to the voices of the variety of people within their within their company, within their building. The one thing that jumps out at me is that far too often um, the spotlight that shines brightly enough for people to see things enough to reassess them are coming out of funeral processions. And that's, I think, the unfortunate thing is that we can go back year after year after year and look at these points of national introspection and reevaluation and find that the catalyst is arguably uh, folks like George Floyd who are, you know, creating uh, un unintentionally and tragically a moment for people to stop and say, hang on a second, there's perspectives I'm not getting and I'm not hearing because I'm not uh, asking the right questions. I'm not listening. I'm not uh, taking the appropriate measure of what happened, what led to it, and what can I do about it? And I'm going to create a lot of space for companies who are willing to reassess anything from the simple matter of the inclusivity of who's speaking at company events 
to big things like, yes, we're going to change our brand, we're going to change our logo, we're going to change our name. Uh, you just wish it didn't have to happen um, as the results of tragic circumstances. Every time that happens, I find myself praying that the national conversation is actually furthering race relations to coming together. It, sometimes it can feel so much like spinning our wheels and just kicking up mud. Well, step one is always uh, recognizing and acknowledging that you've got a problem. And if if we're beginning to see in the contrast of current events and other things that we have an empathy issue and that we're not we're not doing things the way we'd want them done to us and that some of these really simple very jesus concepts of doing unto others as you'd have them do unto you and prioritizing loving your neighbor as you love yourself and maybe the corollary to that is you've got to love yourself well enough that your love your your hatred of self doesn't justify hatred of others that Maybe we're seeing what can happen if empathy so completely breaks down into really, really destructive tribalism. And maybe step two is to begin to ask the question of, okay, what do we do about it? Maybe marching side by side is, is a step. To me, storytelling is the piece that we need to, to wind our way to. And honest storytelling, honest being honest with the stories that are out there and not whitewashing them, not reading them from the history books that so many of our children are being taught from. It's opening our doors and inviting in voices of those who have lived experience. And Rayshawn, I am so grateful that you would come and talk with us today. You have experience that I certainly don't have that Greg definitely doesn't have. And, um, you, it's, we're having a conversation about these difficult topics and reaching across the aisle both directions to have honest and open conversation and giving a voice. Harmony Springs gives a voice. Yeah, thank you guys for having me. I really enjoyed it. Thanks so much, Rishon. Appreciate it. <laughs>